Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We teach students that success comes from doing these things, following the right steps, and you'll make it, right? And there's some self-learning along the way, but really, I've learned... In the dozen years, I've made so many mistakes. I botched so many photo stories and so many assignments. I made, like, you know, the day, I remember the day, this is the clear one in my memory, the day Osama bin Laden uh, was announced dead. Uh, it was the evening, actually. I, um, I, I knew it was big news, but I didn't understand how big it was because I didn't grow up in America. And I tried to get to Times Square to take pictures, but like traffic was just so bad, and I just kind of gave up. And I just thought, like, I'll come at it tomorrow; it'll be fine. And and but the best story, the best images for the day came from that night of celebrate the night where people were out to to see what was going on. The Americans were out to celebrate in Times Square, and I'd gone home to sleep because I didn't understand the gravity of it. You know, I mean, I understood that it was important, but I didn't. I didn't capture. I didn't understand that the psychological weight of it, you know, because I didn't grow up in America, and those are the little things I wish I I took time to understand as a as a young journalist, you know, more than just focusing on just doing the job. I'm homeless. I'm wandering from country to country every every month or two, and you know, staying in hotels. You know, staying Airbnbs, staying with friends. I have a lot of things around the world. I mean, my 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 stuff is not in one place. I don't pay rent anywhere. I don't have an address. Part of the job, I I go from job to job. If not, I just sit around in a city where I have friends and and relax there while I wait for my next gig. And that's what that looks like. There are millions of butterflies. If everyone caused the beginnings of a storm, Earth would be in chaos. A butterfly flapped its wings in the Amazon, and subsequently, a storm ravages half of Europe. And how far forward would we need to go in your life to show the difference you make? La toute première fois que j'ai entendu parler de Marcus Yam, c'était dans le magazine de mon université. Il y avait cet article qui parlait d'un étudiant international qui avait suivi des études de génie aérospatial quelques années avant moi. Il avait trouvé sa voie en couvrant des projets étudiants au chapitre local de l'assaut aéronautique AIAA. Finalement, sa voix justement l'amena là où il est aujourd'hui. La photographie. Il est correspondant international pour le LA Times. Alors, d'étudiant en école d'ingénieur à Buffalo, à photographe récompensé trois fois par le prix Pulitzer pour son travail, mettant en avant sa façon si particulière de raconter des histoires qui ont impacté la décennie passée, ces photos sont à la fois des fragments de vie bruts et urgents qui capturent l'histoire, l'humanité et la société. 
Marcus suit son instinct et sait dire non. Il nous en parle dans cet épisode. Mais ultimement, ce qui m'a fasciné chez lui, c'est comment vivre sa vie. Ainsi, l'a finalement amené exactement là où il devait être, pour raconter le monde par ses images. J'ai donc proposé à Marcus Siam de participer à l'Effet Papillon pour en savoir plus sur cet étudiant international qui a toujours voulu vivre aussi librement que possible afin de vivre son rêve. Son nouveau rêve américain La conversation est en anglais. La voici. Hey Marcus <laughs> Welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this morning. How are you and where are you? Perfect. Okay. <laughs> I am doing all right, all things considered. I am sitting in Beirut, Lebanon. What are you doing there? I'm here for a few reasons. I'm here to bring equipment and work gear here into my little storage closet. And I am also here to attend a wedding for one of my coworkers. Well, I am one of the worst photographers in my entourage. You and I have a bit in common. You were not born in the US. You were born in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. You came to the US to study and you chose the university at Buffalo, UB. I think I first came across your story when I was reading our school newspaper. And as I was reading about your work, I realized that you also had studied engineering, proof that you can do anything with an engineering degree. You were in aerospace engineering. And I told my husband, Mike, about what I found out. And my husband, being the biggest space nerd I know, he was like, oh, yes, yes, Marcus was part of AIAA, an amazing photographer. You've told your story so many times about how you left engineering to become a photographer. And we'll get back to it in a moment. But can you first please tell me what took you to the U.S. in the first place and what drew you to aerospace? Before the origin of all this, which is what took me to the U.S. really happened by chance. When I was in high school, I, uh, I was a gamer and I, I played a lot of games, um, a lot of uh, competitive e-games, e-sports games. And, okay. you know, this is when e-sports wasn't really... A thing yet mm -hmm. it wasn't a, a, a job and but we were making money um, we were winning tournaments and all that and I thought to myself this could be a job one day I almost dropped out of high school I made a pact back then with my best friend uh, you know we would do this esports thing together and and uh, so for the last maybe year and a half two years of high school it was kind of squandered away I maybe attended one-third of school my last year oh, of school <laughs> yeah, playing games. So at the very, very end of high school, right before the old levels, I, I decided I had this premonition that my life wasn't going to be great if I went down this road. And I decided to go the other way quickly. And um, I had a few classmates that were very kind to teach me everything that you they learned in the last two years of high school <laughs> into three weeks. They took shifts, a couple hours each. Wow. In the, and I sat in the library for many, many hours and just like crammed everything in. And we took that last high school exam and I managed to, out of nine subjects, managed to get five A's, you know, not bad. Everything else, not so good. But those grades weren't good enough for the, the prestigious college programs that my parents wanted me to go to. In Malaysia. There's an expectation that, you know, if you do well, you go to Australia or you go to the UK. Those are very prestigious educational programs. Mm -hmm. and, and nobody really thought about going to America because it, it's like 
a not, not a spoken thing, but in, amongst Malaysians, or at least like back then, the American programs were at the bottom of, you know, bottom of the educational system. Like, you know, don't go to America. Like, America's for dummies, you know. <laughs> you can go to Europe or go to Australia, one of right. those two. Like, you know, they're, they're smarter than everybody else. So, And I didn't qualify. I didn't have good enough grades. So I ended up going to, like, a, a smaller, like, community-style community college. Mm-hmm. And that's all I could afford it. That's all my grades could get me in. And I, I could only get into the American program there, barely. But that being said, that, that wasn't the only reason why I wanted to go to America. My parents really wanted me to go to the UK and Australia. And, and one of being, like you know, being 17, 16, 17, and 18, that, was, that is the perfect age to say no. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I, I just said no. And I was like, I'm not going to where you want me to go. And I had a globe growing up. Like yeah. a, and, and I think every kid should have a globe. Agreed. To know, to, to, <laughs> to have them understand how big this world is, right? Yeah. So and I just put my are. finger on one end. I put my finger randomly on the other end. And I it's like, oh, it's America. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so is it literally at the opposite of the globe, uh, Malaysia and America? I, mean, I remember doing that. It wasn't really literally opposite. I just mm-hmm. randomly put my finger on Wait. America. And I thought to myself, I'm going to America because it's the <laughs> farthest, the most farthest point I could get for, away from my parents. Uh. <laughs> that was like the, maybe the number one reason why I went to America. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Not like a, a very like interesting story, but like, you know, it's oh, a it story of, of coming of age and like wanting mm-hmm. to like be your own person and, and be your own self. And, and that's the reason why I ended up in America. And when okay. I did, I, 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 I had this plan. I was going to pursue my childhood dreams of, you know, maybe one day, you know, becoming an astronaut. Like, it'll be, it's sweet, but, like, it's almost impossible to become one, right? And, um, but I, I, I really like engineering. I had a, a natural affinity to understanding how things worked. Mm-hmm. Physics was my, the easiest subject. I excelled it in school, so I thought to myself, like, well, this is clearly obvious that I'm going to be an engineer one day. And then I, I really, so I signed up for an aerospace program. And the reason why I ended up in Buffalo was partly because I, um, I had qualified for the other, I had gotten into the other schools across America uh, with, from my grades from college. And, but the reason why I ended up in Buffalo was because I followed a girl there. Aha. <laughs> Classic uh. mistake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mistake or not, right? I mean, it took you where you are now. <laughs> Classic choice a, right, a young, right, right. young man would make, right? Yeah. I came back to Buffalo for a guy too, so... <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. It all works out at the end. Yeah. So, but I ended up there and, uh, you know, it was great. I loved it. I loved every... I wouldn't change it for the world. And if I had to do it again, I'll do it all the same. You, so you did your four years of Bachelor mm-hmm. at Buffalo uh, and... I think I uh, heard a pretty cool story. I thought, like, as an international uh, former student, that you needed some English credits uh, to um, kind of validate your whole uh, program. Um, and that's how you started at the Spectrum, the school newspaper, um, in order to get, um, I mean, yeah, the, grad- the credits to graduate. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah, so, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if this applies to, like, international students from Europe or other places where it's English speaking but they we were told from the academic advisors at that time that we needed like these English credits to right. graduate and uh, because all students they assume all students you know 
didn't speak English growing up, and they just learned it later. And English is my first language, so I oh thought, really? So, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, no, I mean, I'm. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> no, of course not. I mean, the story of my life is I say no. I always say no to everybody, you know. I, so I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do something else. So I, um, I happened to walk by the student union one day, and I came across this flyer, and it kind of piqued my interest. And I was like, well, you know, come work for us, write or take pictures for us, and, you know, we can't pay you money, but we can offer you some credits. And I was like, can you offer me these credits, like these <laughs> ones? And they were like, sure. I mean, it worked out. When I did it, I had the time of my life. Because I've never done photography in my life before, all that. Really, that was not like something a hobby on the side uh, growing up. No, I mean I, I did one art class like when I was a child, and I drew the same picture as a child over and over again. <laughs> What was it? The river, a tree, a mountain. That's it. That's all I knew how to draw. Like you know, <laughs> because it was it was actually from a painting in my house, like ah. in my parents' house. <laughs> so I only knew how to draw that. You know, it's always the same variation of the same mountain scene, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wasn't really well versed in the arts and crafts and all that. And I never spent any time doing that and as a kid growing up in Malaysia. It was all math and science, math and science, yep. math and science. So when I picked up the camera and I did all that, I had a blast. I never had that much fun in my life before. And I thought, eh, this is, this is cool. This is nice. It could be a good hobby one day. I think I, I heard you talk about your first American dream. Uh, I mean, the original one, the one that a 20-year-old Marcus had until back then. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it involved a boat and going fishing every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's fair to say that you're living uh, right now a life that's pretty far from uh, that life that you envisioned initially, uh, and probably all of us, right? Um, so what does your life look like? Uh, today where what 15 years later what does my life look like right now mm -hmm. it's a, a strange departure from the life that i had from uh and had envisioned as a 20 year old marcus mm -hmm. um i in 20 years old at you know when i was in college i wanted to one day have a stable job buy a house buy a boat go fishing with my friends hang out my friends every weekend like you know That was the life that I thought that was made for me, and that's the life that was I prescribed to. Today, well, I'm homeless. I'm wandering from country to country every every month or two, and you know, staying in hotels, you know, staying in Airbnbs, staying with friends. I have a lot of things around the world. I mean, my 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 stuff is not in one place. I don't pay rent anywhere. I don't have an address part of the job I, I go from job to job if not I just sit around in a city where I have friends and, and relax there while I wait for my next gig and that's what that looks like So travel is a huge uh, part of uh, what you're what you're doing today and how you work right um, was that something growing up I know that photography was not something growing up so I'm curious. No, travel was really not something I did growing up. I, I maybe went like on vacation once or twice with my family, my, you know, but for the most part, I don't remember traveling that all too much. I don't even remember packing my bags as a kid. So this is all very new to me. Living out of a suitcase is a, a strange and, and foreign concept for me, at least. I'm, I'm learning as I go every day. And like, as I say, like, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, but that this is where 
I feel like my strengths as in it, my strengths developed as in, you know, from engineering school come into play here. And I'm logistically oriented thanks to engineering school. I'm, you know, detail oriented. I, mm -hmm. I, I think about all the things I have and I, a need for work and need for life. And I sprinkle them all around the world. You know, I put some in Seoul, Korea, South Korea. I put some in Hong Kong. I put some in I put some in Kabul, Afghanistan. I put some in Beirut, Lebanon, and I now put some in New York, New York. So it's a very, very different life, I would say. So, from an engineering uh, uh, student to being a three-time Pulitzer awardee for your work in Afghanistan that you just mentioned with the LA Times in 2022, uh, for your and I quote raw and urgent images uh, of the U.S. departure from Afghanistan as well as in 2015, I believe, with the Seattle Times, um, for all of these um, awards have been uh, rewarding your work in breaking news photography. Can you explain exactly what is breaking news photography? The simple version of, of what is breaking news photography is, is something that is actively going on, that is actively evolving. And when you arrive, you are almost a part of, you arrive to a scene that is not over. You know, that, that is like, you know, in, um, in, in Seattle, when I arrived at the landslide, when I got there, I was one of the first people there. And I was, I arrived and I was stopped from going further and I walked into the landslide. I decided to walk. I was like, they won't let my car in, but they said, you can walk in. So I started to walk in and I can still feel the ground moving. Like, you know, it's still, you know, things are still happening. And my editor called me and said, like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm walking in. He's like, are you stupid? Like, you want to die? Like, you know, and, and he basically said, like, I got a better idea. I'll put you in a helicopter. You'll fly in, you know? So that's what happens. And, and I think the, the, the gist of it is, um, like, in Afghanistan, breaking news photography is defined because it, it's classified that way because I was there when things were happening. You were in... In a sense, you are in the center, the eye of the hurricane. You know, you are there. You are in the middle of it all, basically. And you are capturing things as they rapidly evolve, and you're kind of rapidly also adapting to the change, the, the fast-changing pace of, of the environment, the news, the story, um, and everything else that's going on. So uh, and Af Afghanistan was a great example because... I arrived there on the 14th, the day before the country fell to the Taliban, and, and well, before the Taliban arrived in Kabul, and and when on the 15th, all the when the Taliban announced that they were circling Kabul, a lot of Western uh, organizations, Western news organizations, were pulling their journalists out. They were calling everybody like, "Get to the airport now, everybody! Like, we have an airplane airplane waiting for you. We have an." Uh, exit route, everybody out. So I, my friends from like the Washington Post and New York Times all called me and they said like, we are leaving now. So you can come with us or you can stay. And um, yeah, and I... What made you decide to stay? I decided to stay because rule number one of what I do is when people zig, you zag. When people go left, you go right. <laughs> and that's rule number one of journalism. Number right. two is I really believe in, in staying for the story. Um, I believe that it was worth the um, it was worth 
the potential risk involved, and and I didn't know, I didn't know enough to know why I should just leave without you know staying and investigating. I I wanted to find out, and I wanted to say maybe you know maybe 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 they will be hostile to the journalist, but then I'll leave. But I don't know until I see it with my own eyes. I'm not going to read some report on Twitter or some things people say on Twitter and be afraid and run right. So, for the most part. I wanted to stay to see this through, but a lot of the, the the other last reason why I wanted to stay was because this war echoes of the Vietnam War. So much of this war, so much of this occupation, reminds me of the stories I read in Vietnam. I'm I'm curious, you know, in assignments like this, and it sounds like it's most of your assignments.、Um, How do you gauge danger? So I understand that、uh, you're trying to go where people don't go. I understand that you're trying to tell the story, but there is also a, a, almost a sanity check, right? Like, where do you draw the line to keep yourself、uh, safe and to make sure you get home to tell the stories that you're reporting? Where do I draw the line?、Um, the line is my life, right? At the end of the day. <laughs>、um, How do I draw it? it? It's it's hard to describe it. A lot of people have asked that question. It's hard to describe. There's no science to figuring out how you draw this line. I think a lot of it goes no. There's no recipe. It goes by intuition, gut, gut feeling. When I when my gut told me to stay because my gut told me that you know I was going to be able to do this work and I was going to be okay. I was going to figure out a way to stay safe.、Um, but if they start, you know, and so in some instances, like in the war in Ukraine. You know, there are some days where my gut tells me it's time to go, and I listen to that gut feeling. You know, even though it's still safe, if my gut tells me it's time to go, I go. Like you know, I had one instance in Ukraine. Where you have to listen to it. I had、yeah. three bad things happen to me in one day, and even though it was a really quiet day, my gut told me to leave, and I left, and I'm not going to question it, even though it was a quiet day. But we, it was just three things happened back to back to me. Maybe it's superstitious, superstition, but I listened to it. What were those bad things? Do you remember? Stepping on a booby trap, and then it was、um, a, a slashing a tire, <laughs> and then it was、uh, something as small as like dropping my camera. My good luck had run out for the day, and I needed to leave. And、uh, so I'm superstitious like that, and that's where I draw the line. If I, my gut feeling tells me it's not, don't go, don't go. How do you work?、Um, I was、uh, watching some of your stories when you were in Ukraine a few weeks ago,、um, and it looks like it's not only LA Times people;、uh, it's、uh, what other photographers.、Um, I mean, it's not solo work, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs>、um, do you work with other media?、Um, does everybody have different roles, or do you just kind of like、um, go after stories together? How does that work? For the most part, we work alone. We we work like alone, as in like me and another. Uh, me and my coworker, a writer, we would work together when we both work for the LA Times, and and we hire a local driver or a, a local translator, and we just you know in, in that sense that's a full car. It's four people in the car. Is that what we call a fixer? Yes, similar, but a fixer does more than translate. A fixer arranges things. They, a fixer is like a, a like a TV producer or a radio producer. They 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 book people for interviews. They find people for in. They basically have connections, and they find those people. A translator. We usually use a translator because half the time, 
in some of these situations, you don't really need a fixer, you just need a translator. It's much better that way because a translator, like, excels at just translating, like, you know, what people are saying directly into, like, you know, like the perfect translation. Without interpreting or anything. Right, without interpreting. They just basically, you know, you're getting the full quote from people, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, with fixers, you know, most fixers have different skill sets. Not everybody's good at translating. Mm. So, you know, it, for, for, for working in a foreign language, having a translator, a really good translator, is way better than having, a, you know, a decent fixer or a good fixer. You know, for me, at least, right. like, I found that more interesting because for interviews, that's where it really counts. Um, this may sound like a very, I mean, as I'm absolutely not in your field, so um, forgive my, my ignorance, but like, how do you set the path to a picture? Is this, um, um, do you know what you're looking for as you get somewhere? Or um, is um, your, your, your creation, uh, you taking these pictures very spontaneous? H how, does that, how does that work? I assume it's a healthy balance. It's a little bit of a balancing trick between the two. I mean, it was a, it's an organic process, meaning I think, even if I think I know what I'm looking for, when I show up, it doesn't look like that. You know, the scene or the people or the situation does not even, like, happen that way. And you kind of have to be comfortable in, in, be comfortable in having no agency, over anything that happens or anything that's presented to you. Also, in a way, you've got to, in a way, create a sense of agency over having no agency. As a, as a, as a photographer, as a journalist, you've got to be comfortable with that. So when I walk into the places, I, I meet new people, I'm just basically opening. I got to practice, in a, a sense, my editor calls this radical openness, which is you to keep an open mind and you've got to approach it. Like You've got to... When you meet people, you walk into a scene, you've got to like really like let go of everything you know and just be there in the moment and like absorb everything and try to find the best picture or the best you know thing to to document. Um, and so that's how we approach it. And so, do you kind of see the picture before it's taken, or do you? rediscover it afterwards like i don't know like you 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 have a full day or you're done with your assignment and you're getting back to wherever you came from um how, how does that work i see i see the picture before i take it it depends i mean like I, i i don't think about whether or not it's good or bad i just think i i take a picture when i'm moved by seeing something right if if you know if i think sometimes i see an image and i take it Sometimes I, I see what could be an image and I get ready to take it. So it depends. Like, there are different, like, you know, uh, different approaches, but it, I, I, I have to be moved by it, right? As a photographer, as even as a journalist, you know that sometimes you hear a quote and you just know that's the quote and you just want to, like, write that down and document it. And I, it's the same way for photography. I sit in the car sometimes and I see something interesting passing by and I say... I'll tell the driver to stop, stop, stop. I'll jump out of the car immediately and start taking pictures of it and talking to the people and, and or capturing what I saw on camera. And I don't come back to it. I, I don't, in this line of work that we do, um, we never have a second chance, almost never get a second chance to revisit a scene because um, you have to assume that you won't take the same road coming back or, you know, you won't have time or something may happen and 
So whatever you have in front of you is the only chance you get. And you've got to be comfortable with making, you know, doing your work in a short period of time. You know, sometimes it's less than an hour. Sometimes it's only 10 minutes. <laughs> and you've got to get everything and you've got to move, you know. And um, in, in this type of journalism, at least, it, it's like, it's almost like learning how to slice onions in the air. It's <laughs> a good analogy. <laughs> It is, it, I mean, you don't do it perfectly, but you learn how to do it, right? Because you've got to, at the end, at the end of the day, get the onion sliced. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's pretty or, 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 or not. You just have to do it. And so you're, you're talking about like being comfortable doing things uh, quickly, as, as you're saying. It sounds like you're forever on call as well. So like, do you sleep? Do you sleep with your camera ready to go with like SD cards and batteries? And like, you know what I mean? Like, how does that work? How do you rest? <laughs> I mean, I uh, I draw from my experiences, like from 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 watching how firefighters, police officers, soldiers, the way they operate and like the way they prepare their, for their missions and all that stuff, and and I prepare myself the same way. So I'm always have a bag ready, I uh, you know several bags for several different contingencies ready to go. You know, different field kits, different pouches for different types of things, and like everything's organized properly. So if I have a certain type of trip, I, I'm always ready. Like everything's packed and ready to go in different compartments. I'm always on call, um, in 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 a strange way, but you know, not like in a way where like you got to be here in five minutes, right? It's more like you. This is happening. We need you here in the next, you know, 24 to 48 hours because you know it takes a a flight to get there and takes like you know preparation and all that but yeah you can be on call sometimes and have to run so like i was on call in i was sitting in new york preparing to go to afghanistan and my editor called me and says they started canceling flights to ukraine i think we think the war might start so you need to go to ukraine like in 24 hours <laughs> so i just basically dropped the bag for afghanistan picked up the bag for ukraine and went <laughs> So I don't have to spend any time packing. Basically, <laughs> everything's ready. I work with audio and words, right? This is how I report what I feel, what I see, what I witness. Um, you do that with pictures. We have a saying, I think it's the same in English, a picture is worth a thousand words. Is that true? Can we tell absolutely everything with photography? I mean, it's really... Uh, <laughs> it's really... What's the word? Uh... uh It's a lot to assume that a picture can tell a thousand <laughs> words. It's a lot to assume that words can tell everything or audio can tell everything. I think, I think we live in a generation where you need all the formats to work together to really tell a richer story. And I think that's the beauty of journalism in the digital world right now, that we are able to tell a very rich and vibrant story, you know, not through just one format you know, to multiple formats working together. When pictures and words marry and sound marry each other, it becomes this beautiful thing. It's the same with cinema. You get, you know, video and, and sound, and it just becomes this beautiful thing, you know? And I see it that way. And, and yes, pictures on its own and audio, I mean, all its formats on its own can really do a really wonderful thing if if everything in 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 the picture was perfect like the light was perfect the composition is perfect the moment is perfect yeah but those pictures are, are few and far between you know you make only maybe less than five of them in your entire life like the most perfect picture you know and 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 
for the most part, I, I think it's, it's, you know, I think that saying is an old saying, but I think, you know, there is some truth to that, but I almost, I almost always believe in, in marrying the formats together and collaborating with other journalists and, and doing, you know, and doing one thing well and not doing everything. Um, and it's true. I think uh, in the in the digital world, as you're saying, the the, the marriage, the combination of uh, all these different medium. Marcus, what happens after you take a picture? Um, you know, we talk about the picture itself, what we see in it, but um, after you take it, how does your picture go on to live and touch and shake people the way you're hoping it it, it will? You know, like are you part of that story? Uh, how how does that work? If I may say. <laughs> Sure. I mean, I generally not try not to be a part of the story. Um, I don't insert myself as much, but I do try to engage our readers. Um, I, I feel like uh, photojournalism has changed in a way because of social media. Uh, there is a lot more engagement and a lot more feedback from the author, from the photographer, from the journalist, right? I, I tend to, after I take a picture... I engage, you know, before or after the picture, I engage the, the, the person, you know, in the picture. You know, the people that we photograph or the scene, I try to, like, look around. After I take a picture, if, the, if it's an inanimate object or a, a landscape, I wander around and I, I look for every angle. But if it's a person, I ask a lot of questions. I see how they're doing, you know. I, I try to engage in a conversation. And, and, and by doing so, sometimes a better picture comes along if you engage people. And I most oftentimes have to make sure I, I cross my T's and dot my I's. You know, I, you know, as a journalist, you, you know this, you know, you get the names, you get the age, <laughs> you, get, you get the information about where they're from and for your captions. And that usually starts a conversation with them. And, and, and I look for other pictures and I ask questions about possibility, what they know. I ask for advice, like, what do you know? What can you tell me? about, you know, life here and, like, what I should be, you know, I am the outsider coming into people's lives half the time. So I'm always curious about what people know about their surroundings and never assume that you know everything. I mean, you've been reporting on, on so, uh, as you said, like, not only people, but um, um, have you ever... I don't know if it's like kept in touch, but like, you know, like uh, know what happened to these people that you captured that helped you tell that story afterwards? Sometimes I keep in touch with people. Um, I, I, some people's, some of the, some of the people I photographs, their, their lives kind of intersect with mine in a weird way. And, and, and some, some of them I do keep in touch with, I, you know, um, for some of the Afghans that I've photographed and, and, and interacted with, I do keep in touch with those folks because I'm curious to see how their lives would turn out and I'm genuinely concerned about, you know, how things are going to unfold for them in the coming years. Um, but obviously, like, you know, our lives, are, my, my, our lives and our work is multifaceted and rapidly moving. I can't keep in touch with everybody I photograph, you know. And, 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 and it, it, it kind of comes and goes and, you know, eventually I'll have to move on and focus on other people and, you know, some, you know, and it, it happens. But I do try to act, try to keep in touch with folks who I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious about and I want to know more. And, um, and, and it's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's good because ultimately before I'm a photographer or a journalist, I'm a human being. And you generally just want to check in on people. Talking about follow-up, uh, can you tell me about, what was his name, Darl Snyder? Is, is that Darl Snyder? Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Darl, 
Darl Snyder was a, a, a lovely gentleman who owned a house, you know, out in Lake Isabella uh, in Kern County, California. And during the Erskine wildfires, when, you know, it kind of picked up and burnt around Lake Isabella, I, had, I was there on assignment to cover the wildfire and I was chasing the very, very edge, the very front of the wildfire, and I was following it. And I followed the, the flames, and, and, and it came in front of his house, basically. And I came in front of his house. It's like, you know, and it came in front of his house and saw that the flames were surrounding his house. So, and hadn't gone in yet. So I, I started to take pictures of the, you know, the front entrance, the gate of his house with the, you know, with the smoke in the background, with covering the sun, and the American, he had an American flag waving in front. So I thought, oh, this is an interesting picture. It's not the best picture, but it's an interesting picture. I took a few photos and moved on. I ran back in the car, and we drove on. And, and I didn't actually notice him, but, but he was actually nearby, standing maybe, maybe across the street watching me, and I didn't know. And he watched me as I just took my pictures and moved on. And, and, and interestingly enough, he thought that I was a vulture, coming in to like you know capture the misery and all that stuff and 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 moved on then but he didn't know much and you know but eventually he followed our coverage he followed the work that we did and you know that he that he he eventually saw that I wasn't just going around photographing homes getting destroyed I was also doing other things I was you know following up on you know, people who lost their homes. I was, you know, actually in it, like talking to them, getting information, like, you know, um, doing more than just showing misery, basically. And he appreciated that and changed his mind. And what had happened is he took the flag down, he replaced the flag with a new flag. He took the old flag, folded it up in a military fashion, uh, triangle, uh, made a custom frame of it, and wrote a letter to me and sent it to my office. I was on my first assignment overseas for the LA Times. I was in Iraq, sitting in. A, I was in an like a, a like a, almost like an abandoned building, with a bunch of soldiers. As you know, they were on, on the front lines of of Mosul, Iraq, when they were, you know, when soldiers were pushing against the Islamic State, like pushing them away, and they were going from building to building to building, and they had a tank outside just firing, you know, heavy machine guns at the Islamic State fighters, and we were just sitting inside a warehouse. And I was just waiting there, waiting for the, you know, waiting for the soldiers to clear the road so we can move one house, one building ahead. And, and I got an email from my, my equipment manager asking me if, if I ordered a television and sent it to work. <laughs> And I was like, of course not. Why would I order a television? And we're like, well, we don't know. Some people do it. <laughs> I mean, you don't have an address, as you said. So that, yeah. That well, I don't be. have an address now. I did back then, but like, okay. you know, they thought I was doing something fishy at work, and you know, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I said, well, open it. I want to see. I don't know what's in it. Just open it. So I gave them permission to open it, and they opened it, and it was lo and behold, it was uh, the best gift I've ever received from a reader literally it was like the best thing that hap like has happened to me in my career i've never had this moment in my career and i don't know if i ever will like it was a moment where you where i really understood the power of journalism and the value of journalism even if you change one person's mind that's all it takes that's all you've done your job 
you don't have to change a hundred people's mind or thousands of people's minds. You, all you do is move one person. And, and that really solidified in my head why we do this. If people want to want to see uh, what it is, I think it's uh, one of your top tweets uh, on your on your Twitter page, um, and you you can see the the, the, the flag, uh, uh, and it's a uh, uh, really yeah really really moving. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like as a photographer, uh, you're often doing the visible work, but you yourself are very invisible, right? We read the journalist who's writing. Was that like one of your first encounters with a, with a reader? Yeah, it's one of the first encounters I've had with a reader. I mean, I've had a few more since, but like nothing as poignant and as, as visible as that. I mean, we, I spent the last dozen years of my career trying to be invisible, you know, trying to just blend in to the background and, and not be part of the scene um, and not to interrupt or not to intervene. Yeah, you know, and just letting people be people, and 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 this this flag, you know, reminds me that like you know, that that we are human first, ultimately, before all of that, and you know, and it reminds me that you know when I see somebody in distress, you know, or that you have to do everything you can to help them before you take pictures of them, even. On your website, you state that your goal is to take the viewers to the front line of conflict, struggle, and intimacy. How can one do that? And why is this so burning to you? You know, like, what, why is this you, your thing? When I say conflict, struggle, and intimacy, it doesn't necessarily mean going to war. I mean, it could mean anything. It could be anywhere. It could be at home. It could be overseas. I mean, I think the reason why I... I I lock into those three themes is because I had a, 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 a tumultuous childhood growing up. I was always arguing and I was always unsettled. I have, uh, you know, I've had... And saying no. <laughs> exactly. And I've had a very, like, you know, not so healthy relationship with my parents, you know, and, and not so healthy relationship with, like, you know, Uh, uh, some of the people I went to school with. I mean, I was bullied as a child, as a as a teenager in high school, and and that had an effect of me in, in in a weird way. But I came out of it very normal. But like, I remember what it's like to be bullied. I remember what it's like to be, you know, have people put their thumb down on you. In that sense, the struggle can mean anything. Um, and intimacy for me comes from the idea that. I've always longed for intimacy. I think growing up with Asian parents, especially in Southeast Asia, that is like the hardest thing to do because Asian parents aren't really known for expressing intimacy or even expressing acknowledgement for that matter. And I think when you grow up in that kind of environment as a child, you, it really can feel like it's devoid of any intimacy. And so I, I, looked at, I looked for that in my life later, and I feel like now I look for that in my work. And I'm always looking for that because I think that's what makes us human, you know, is when we can be intimate. I think that's, you know, when we struggle, that makes us human. How we cope with struggle, you know, that makes us human. How we love, how we hate, how we express ourselves, that's intimacy, and, and that's what makes us human. You know, when I when I think of conflict, I think of all the things beyond the war. I think of like you know, the fight you're going to have with your parents, with your loved one, 
or with your boss, you know, or the you know the fight between John Doe or Jane Doe with with the government, you know, you know the struggle of protesters, you know, or or just it can be it can also boil down to like the fight between you versus you, like an internal conflict, and and it can mean a lot of things, and I and, and I am kind of I I kind of represent. I feel like I represent that as a person, you know. I'm in always in conflict with myself, and you know, uh, because wh- what I want and who I am are two different things in my head, and and I'm always trying to 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 reconcile that. Sometimes I'm always adjusting to grow, and and it can really be in conflict with you know who I want to be, you know, and the same way the struggle and and the same way for intimacy. I'm always like. Growing in those departments, and I feel like that's what makes me human, and I'm in a sense like you know assuming that's what makes everybody else human. And so you're saying about that that internal conflict between who you were and who you want to be. Who are these two different people? They're different in a sense where, I mean, who I want to be obviously is I want to be. I would like to be the most generous, giving, loving, you know, most communicative person in the world, right? And who I am is obviously not that I'm not like you know I try I try to be as generous as I can in my life I try to be giving but I know I'm not like I know I, I don't have enough time to give to my friends I don't have enough time to give to my loved ones or attention or love to sometimes and I'm not great in those departments I, I'm very a very flawed human being I you know I struggle with intimacy sometimes and and I, I cope by looking for that in my work that's so interesting how your your work is um Is it helping you in that uh, in that regard? Yeah, I mean, it helps me understand people. With the more time I spend with people, understanding like how these things work, the more I understand about life. I mean, I learned the most about life watching people live their lives, which is a strange thing to say. I've lived. I feel like I've lived, you know, a hundred lives now at this point. Watching so many people live their lives and. You know, I know how grandparenting works. I know how parenting sort of works. You know, I I, I know how like you know, uh, I know how like a rich person lived their lives. I know how a poor person lived their lives. Like you know, it's like you just watch and you just learn lessons from them, and 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 in that sense, like I'm growing, I'm learning, and I I adjust my my future self, what I want for my future self. I'm always adjusting that. I'm always editing, self-editing what I want and, you know, in a sense, forcing myself to self-edit who I am today and try to be better. It sounds like the path that you've taken to get where you are today, um, was it was not a straight shot, but it sounds like it's taken you the right route. It's taught you so many things along the way. Rather than asking you if there is something you do differently in your life, Is there any, I don't know if it's a photography, a story that you do differently uh, in retrospect with everything that you've learned along the way? I don't know. I, I think about it sometimes. I do. This is a question I do think about sometimes uh, in retrospect. I would obviously like, I wish and only wish I had like if I had to change it or do something differently with my work is that I would absorb the value of experience much sooner. I would like concentrate on getting more experience, be more in a way awake, consciously like consciously awake for like not awake consciously mentally or or philosophically awake 
for the work that I had in my early career. I never was never very philosophical early in my career and wasn't like didn't think that my work amounted to much. And I think over time I developed an understanding of how this plays out and how that success doesn't come overnight. Success comes from your 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 what's the word from your sheer amount of failures and sheer amount of lessons. That's where success comes from. And I think I didn't understand that as a young person. And I just thought success would come if you do the right things. And, and that's where I put a lot of my effort and concentration on early on in my career. And I think that applies to all industries, a lot, all jobs and careers that we teach students that success comes from doing these things, following the right steps, and you'll make it, right? And there's some self-learning along the way, but really, I've learned in the dozen years, I've made so many mistakes, I botched so many photo stories and so many assignments. I made, like, you know, the day, I remember the day, this is a clear one in my memory, the day Osama bin Laden uh, was announced dead. Uh, it was the evening, actually. I, um, I, I knew it was big news, but I didn't understand how big it was because I didn't grow up in America. And I tried to get to Times Square to take pictures, but like traffic was just so bad, and I just kind of gave up. And I just thought, like, I'll come at it tomorrow. It'll be fine. And, and, but the best story, the best images for the day came from that night of celebrate, the night where people were out to, to see what was going on. The Americans were out to celebrate in Times Square. And I'd gone home to sleep because I didn't understand the gravity of it, you know? I mean, I understood that it was important, but I didn't, I didn't capture, I didn't understand that, the psychological weight of it, you know, because I didn't grow up in America. And those are the little things I wish I, I took time to understand as a, as a young journalist, you know, more than just focusing on just doing the job. Yeah, like you said, like there is no recipe for uh, for success, and uh, and I think it is important to to reemphasize uh, the fact that uh, you need to make mistakes and fail <laughs> to learn yeah. and to grow uh, professionally and as a I've human. I've made a as lot well. of mistakes. I have um, I have a great boss right now, a great uh, director of photography, who I think is the best boss I ever have in my life. Partly only because he encourages me to make mistakes. Like it's okay. How so? in this way where just do it, try everything. Even if you suck at it, just try it. And if you suck, then, you know, so be it. We'll move on to other things. But if you think you want to keep trying, he, he doesn't mind that, you fuck, you, that you've, you know, fudged up the assignment. You know, he doesn't mind. As long as you deliver something, it, it's okay if the quality is not there. The, 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 what's mat what matters to him is that you try. And I'll never be judged on on the quality of the work, but I'll be judged on the effort that you put in, you know? And that's how you grow. I mean, that's how I grew at the Los Angeles Times is that, like, I've had so many screw-ups along the way. I, I overslept a major breaking news assignment. I, I forgot to put a memory card in my camera for a very important shoot. I, you know, like, all these little things you, you make mis... But when you have bosses that says... It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's the greatest feeling in the world that you know you won't get yelled at. You know what I mean? That, that this doesn't feel like a punishment. This doesn't feel like work. Now it feels like I'm playing. 
When work doesn't feel like work, that's when you know you're, do, you're following your passion in life. Marcus, we're talking about impact here. What is the photography that you think has had the most impact, whether it's on your life or on touching others? I mean, the most recent things that I, I've, I can kind of frame into this question is that the body of work that we've, I've created in Afghanistan during the fall of Afghanistan, you know, I've been told has touched a lot of Afghans, you know, not just in Afghanistan, but also Afghans all around the world. Um, many, many Afghans have written in to me and sent me messages saying that, you know, these photographs, even though they're not like of chrono chronologically of like very specific events, but they weave together a feeling you know, that they weave together a feeling of how Afghans felt when they were watching their country fall. That is the impact, right? When Afghans can understand and feel what it's like through just watching these images, you know, instead of reading the news or whatsoever, they, 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 it captured the exact feeling that they felt. And that is the impact, I mean, And, and a lot of Afghans remember that and continue to remember the work that, you know, that I've done and, and you know, their images that have lived in people's, are living in people's memories. And that's the impact. I mean, I was just speaking to an Afghan uh, Air Force pilot yesterday who I, you know, reached out to randomly about a story. And I introduced myself as Marcus. But he doesn't know my name, which is fine. But I, when he knew that I took the picture of the two journalists who were tortured by the Taliban, he immediately knew who I was. Like, oh, you're that guy, <laughs> you know? And that is the impact in that sense. Like, people remember, you know, who did this work and, like, you know, how this work affected them. And more importantly, that, that's the most important part is how this, the pictures affected them and made them feel. So that is the for now the impact I hope that this is not the only impact I leave and hope the work this is not the impact the work leaves so I, you know I hope to have a long career and hope to create more work like this that you know reminds people that that this is not just you know uh, a segregated world in that sense I mean if I will uh, on the flip side I've also heard from many Americans who have had a stake in this war who have had a son who fought in this war who've had like you know worked with Afghans before, who had been to war themselves, or, or just like bystanders, have written in to me during the coverage and even after the coverage, and even after, you know, the work was recognized, that they, you know, saw in it the, 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 the anguish and the sadness of the Afghan people from, from the American point of view, you know, that this captured for them, you know, the essence of, you know, the failure of this, 20-year forever war that America has, you know, ventured into and left in the dust. We talked uh, a few minutes ago about your American dream. I want to go back to it. What's your American dream today? Do you still have one? I don't know if I can say I have an American dream anymore, for that matter. I'm, you know, because to me, the American dream when I was growing up has always been owning a home, having a family, having a stable life, having friends. And, and now the dream is to live as freely as I can. And I don't know if that's very American. Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, 
it's it feels like it's more European than American, but <laughs> I mean I don't know. I mean like that's what my European friends tell me, but. I just want to live as freely as I can to to roam and to explore and to see things and to understand things and and but acknowledge the fact and also live with the fact that I'm going to be an outsider, I'm going to be a foreigner, and I'm going to have privilege as a foreigner no matter where I go, right? But yeah, that is the dream. The dream is to to engage the world in ways I've never engaged. You know, growing up as a young boy in Malaysia, I could never have lived this freely. I could never have roamed the world so openly and 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 make as many friends as easily growing up. So I'm living a version of the life that maybe I subconsciously wanted as a child, and but never knew it until now. And in, in my adulthood, I, I now know that like I would be very unhappy if I sat down in a nine to five job, you know, in an office and saw the same people over and over again in my life. You know, not to say that's a bad thing, but. But for me personally, I grew up like that, so I don't want to live the same life as my childhood. So that is the dream, in a sense. Well, congratulations, because it sounds like you are living your dream, <laughs> and not so many people can say that. Um, and you are definitely touching uh, many, 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 many lives, and making sure that things don't go forget forgotten. Um, so. Congratulations for, for your work. It's uh, really amazing and truly inspiring. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm trying to, you know, enjoy it while I can. Nothing is permanent. Nothing is forever. And I'm just going to see how, how long this ride goes for and adjust as I go, basically. You know, who knows? My body, I can't... How do you say? Self-edit? <laughs> I'm going to self-edit as I go. I mean, I know my body, physical body, cannot do this forever. You know, I don't know how often. I mean, I've been on several uh, multi cross-continent airplane trips this year already. Like uh, to think of going between Europe and America, Europe and America, Europe and America, like that, back and forth, like uh, like maybe like like seven times or eight times already so far is a lot for your body. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I can do like. 12 to 20 hour plane rides and we're only in july <laughs> yeah we're <laughs> only in july i don't know if I, if i i don't know if i can do it in 10 years or 15 years you know it's gonna be really difficult and and let alone like if i ever have have a family settle down and have kids i don't know if i would do that you know do you, you never be a home so you i guess i would self-edit when the time comes and i would reestablish what my my boundaries and my limits are when that happens but for now the goal is to live the limitless life but yeah i mean i would say i was uh, lucky enough to break out of you know societal norms and cultural norms coming out of malaysia and again like you know coming out of the us kind of breaking out of that again so having to do it twice in a row is uh you know is very uh what was the word fulfilling yeah and i mean it seems like it's a pattern i think it's like It sounds like you've been wise enough to listen to your gut feeling ever since you were a young boy, <laughs> you know. Uh, you're using this professionally now, but it's gotten you where you were, uh, where you are. And, uh, and, and congrats. <laughs> no, no, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I have to say the one thing that I, uh, that I, I do learn from, from my time studying engineering is that 
I've never lost my fascination for aerospace stuff. When, when the drone strike happened in Afghanistan, um, the, drone, the American drone strike that killed the Afma, uh, 10 people from the Ahmadi family, and including seven children, we were one of the first journalists on scene. And from that experience, from my previous experience in Iraq, uh, having done airstrikes before, having covered airstrikes before, I knew one of the first things we needed to confirm was whether or not it was a drone strike or whether or not it was a bomb attack, like a, a, a bombing attack. And I went up high, I looked straight down, and I saw, saw the point of impact, and I went downstairs immediately into the wreckage, asked for a shovel, and started digging. And, uh, and upon, like, a few minutes later, I dug out, like, this part, and I started to put the pieces together and look for serial numbers and all that stuff, and we eventually figured out it was... Uh, the uh, uh, a part of uh, um, a Hellfire missile, and 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 I think a lot of that experience comes, like, a lot of that fascination comes from having like you know, developed that in 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 engineering school, and then wanting to understand things and and being fascinated with aerospace stuff. So I still keep that fascination. I'm always like looking at what warplanes are flying over the air, looking at tanks, looking at all this stuff, and I'm just like I'll never get old. it. Never gets old. You must be having a blast sitting on planes going around the world. <laughs> I, I do, I do. And I get my, my favorite fascination, my favorite blast is riding in helicopters. Like, I ah, love yeah. helicopters. Like, I've only done that once. Yeah, that, that's, that, that is very impressive. Yeah, I think, that, I think at this point in my career, clocked in more than, a, more than 100 helicopter rides already and in all kinds of helicopters. And last year I was in a, a Black Hawk helicopter and the doors were just open and we we didn't have seatbelts nothing <laughs> it was just like just hold on to something and hope you don't fall out <laughs> thank you so much it's oh, been hey. a delight talking to you thank you so much for taking the time oh thank you thank you for having me in the show i really appreciate your time quelle vie quel parcours Je vous remercie très sincèrement de nous avoir écoutés et j'espère que la vie, le parcours, la vision de la vie de Marcus Siam vous aura donné envie d'en savoir plus, de vous bouger et d'écouter vous aussi votre petite voix afin d'avoir un impact positif autour de vous. Merci en tout cas de nous avoir écoutés jusqu'au bout. Si cet épisode vous a plu, vous connaissez le refrain par cœur. N'hésitez pas à en parler autour de vous, dans la vraie vie, sur les réseaux sociaux auprès de vos collègues et de vos voisins, peu importe, en tout cas, ça compte énormément. Et si vous avez encore 30 secondes de disponible, n'hésitez pas à donner 5 étoiles au podcast ou même à laisser un petit mot en parlant de ce que vous aimez dans ce podcast. Ça m'aide énormément à faire connaître ce travail. Je suis très heureuse de continuer ce voyage intérieur avec vous autour de l'impact positif. Je vous retrouve la semaine prochaine pour un nouvel épisode. Bonjour, c'est Emmanuel Saint-Martin. J'ai créé French Morning il y a maintenant plus de 15 ans avec une idée simple, donner aux Français de l'étranger une information utile et proche d'eux. En bref, un média communautaire dans le meilleur sens du terme. Plus d'une vingtaine de journalistes participent à cette mission et partagent notre motto, être sérieux sans se prendre au sérieux. Alors si vous voulez les soutenir dans leur travail, rendez-vous sur frenchmorning.com pour vous abonner. Nous n'existons que pour et par 
nos lecteurs.